Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I am going to launch into a bit of a discussion of the essay from 1918, New Woman, of Alexandra Kollontais, which I have read over the last couple of episodes. And I sort of ran out of time in the last episode to do the sort of deep dive and analysis that I generally like to do on the podcast. I think this is a really important essay for a couple of reasons. Obviously, in the last episode, I discussed the idea of Kolontai making a distinction between bourgeois and working class feminism or socialist feminism, which we've discussed a lot on this podcast. But there are two other really important aspects of this essay that I think we should hone in on. The first, which I think is very relevant in the United States and in countries like Poland or Hungary or advanced democracies, where there's this kind of imagined myth of the perfect sort of 1950s nuclear family where there's a husband, a father who goes out and makes the money and the woman stays home and takes care of the kids and keeps the house clean and cooks the meals and maybe gardens and does some philanthropic work in her spare time and possibly, you know, does yoga and plays tennis or whatever it is that she likes to do, watches soap operas, I don't know. The, but that somehow our societies would be better if there we returned if there was a male breadwinner if we returned to a model where male wages were high enough to actually support a family and i think that first of all this ideology is very pervasive in many cultures this idea that somehow a return to the kind of patriarchal family relations of the past will make us all happier and less stressed and more connected and just generally better insulated from the precarity and frustrations of late capitalism. So, you know, you often hear this in terms of the pandemic. So many women were forced to leave the labor force because they had to stay home and look after the kids and homeschool or look after the young kids because there was no childcare or maybe look after elderly parents or look after sick relatives or a, a sick husband or a sick child or a sick parent or whatever. And that if if they were already there in the home, it would have been so much less disruptive to our economy overall. But because all these, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of women had to leave the labor force kind of on a sudden notice because everything shut down. And then there are all these labor shortages and very frustrated women. There's lots of, you know, we've seen a spike in divorces and so there's this weird insidious ideology that underpins this, that somehow a return to kind of more traditional gender roles in a more traditional family would insulate us from the precarity and the discomforts of late capitalism, of, of the economy that we have kind of created for ourselves in the last 40 years, this sort of hyper-individualistic neoliberal economy with very few social safety nets. And I, I completely understand why people think that this might help. It's a very comforting thought because home and the family can be a, a very safe space for people. And especially, I think, for 
immigrant communities and minority communities and, and, and lots of more traditional societies, the family is a really important institution. And I don't necessarily want to throw shade on the idea that our families and our friends uh, and families by family, I also really, I mean, I'm speaking specifically here about a particular vision of the patriarchal family, but I think family is a word that can be used much more broadly. So any kind of family is an important institution for kind of weathering the vicissitudes of late capitalism. But the problem with this ideology, and Colin Ty really speaks about this very directly in this essay, where she says that there are a lot of women who are sort of forced out of the home to work in these really crappy jobs in the factories, and they kind of look back at the past, uh, at the lives of their grandmothers who were taken care of by their fathers and then taken care of by their husbands. And they lived these very sheltered, very protected lives and they didn't have any independence. They didn't have to think for themselves. They think about this as a kind of ideal world. There's a kind of longing for the past. There's this sort of idealization of the traditional woman of the old type, which is what Colin Ty keeps calling her in this essay. And I don't think that's gone away. I mean, this essay was written over a hundred years ago, and we're still living in a world where many people on different parts of the political spectrum, but mostly on the more conservative side of the political spectrum, kind of think that the way to heal our societies from capitalism and from neoliberalism and globalization and all the things that are going on is to return to a more sort of traditional family with traditional gender roles. And what that does, and and again, I think Kolontai really puts her finger on this in this essay, even though it's written well over a hundred years ago, is it sort of elides the responsibility of the economic system for the precarity that people are feeling in their lives. The way that this works out in the contemporary circumstance is people who are on the more misogynistic side of things will blame feminism. They will blame certain kinds of societal changes for the precarity of the economic system. So because women entered the labor force, men's wages fell, and you know that was bad for everybody. Rather than focusing on the realities of things like outsourcing or automation or just globalization more generally, it's much easier to blame either women or minorities or foreigners or somebody, anybody really, other than the elites who are relatively benefiting from the economic system under which we currently live. And so the sort of nostalgia for the past, the nostalgia for a more kind of traditional way of life is part and parcel of a very conservative move not to name the cause of our precarity, which is generally speaking late capitalism and this sort of unbridled seeking of profit and the idea that it doesn't matter if you close a factory in Minnesota or Michigan or wherever and ship those jobs to overseas, the people that are left behind just have to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and adjust to the new reality of the knowledge economy or whatever. And to the extent that they're not able to adjust to the new economy, it's their fault. There's something wrong with them. I think this is a, a huge problem. And 
you know, men feel, especially men who used to work in blue collar jobs, feel incredibly emasculated by the global economy and the way that it has functioned to really gut the industrial heartland of many once previously industrialized societies of these, you know, working class jobs. And then, and then the fantasy that attend that, that kind of comes with that is that if you got those jobs back and you could pay a decent unionized wage and, and, and I'm not saying that there isn't a place for unions. There certainly is. But as long as that doesn't mean going back to some kind of mythical view of traditional family, in which you have a breadwinner and a homemaker who is sort of taking care and tending to the emotional needs of all the members of the family and being compensated indirectly through the wages of her husband. I think, you know, that in and of itself is a myth that will eventually have to die out because I don't think, first of all, there's any going back because I don't think a lot of women want that role. And even those women who think they want that role, and, and, I, and I admit, I think that there are a lot of women who do want to be taken care of and who don't actually like their jobs. In fact, they hate their jobs and they would be very happy to be at home and having somebody else pay the bills. But that for a lot of women after a while, either A, they will realize that their position is very insecure as they get older and they're not as young and beautiful and attractive and interesting to the primary breadwinner as they used to be. This was a very common problem in the past. Or there are women who were socialized in a society where they thought that they were going to have careers, they were educated, they had ambitions for themselves, they had dreams, and then they gave up those dreams and ambitions because they had children and they decided that the best thing to do was stay home. It was a good division of labor. It made a lot of sense. But then as those children get older, and especially as those children leave and these women are empty nesting and they're sort of faced with the reality that they're older and their husbands may not be as interested in them anymore and their kind of sole purpose for existence has, you know, in terms of taking care of the family and taking care of the children is no longer there because the children have gone off. There's an incredible amount of bitterness and frustration that sets in. And I do think that a lot of daughters who see their mothers frustrated, especially mothers who had professional ambitions and gave up those ambitions because of mothering and, and childcare duties and other kinds of duties in the home, that, that there's a, there's a real impetus to do something different and to kind of live up and live, you know, a lot of times mothers even live vicariously through their children. You don't put a lot of pressure on their sons and daughters to like achieve the things that they had wanted to achieve, but they didn't achieve because they kind of gave it up because of the myth of this sort of more stable familial life at home. So I think there's a lot of really interesting things going on there. And but the but the one insight that I think is really important in this essay is that Kolontai recognizes that among these new single independent women who are emerging in 1918 in Russia, many of them are actually quite nostalgic for the lives of their mothers and grandmothers. And they're not necessarily on board with the difficulties of being an independent woman. This is not something that they are excited about or looking forward to. And, and that's relevant to us today because, of course, there are many of us who are out there in the world trying to make independent lives for ourselves. And it's hard. And it's really hard. And it's very difficult given the precarity of the economy and the gigification of so much labor 
and all of the complications of living in a world where everything is being, you know, appified and there's no real stability like there used to be and thing costs are going up and education is expensive and people are getting themselves into debt. There's all sorts of structural things going on here. And there is this very powerful allure of finding some kind of Prince Charming who's going to save you from all of that. And the Prince Charming myth doesn't only apply to women. I think it applies to everybody these days of any gender. There's a, there's this idea that if you marry the right person or you find the right person, they might be able to save you from the difficulties of life, which is true. I mean, if you don't have access to hereditary wealth in our society, the basic daily struggles for existence of paying rent and paying utilities and buying groceries and accessing medical care and transportation and all the things that we need to do to get along is becoming increasingly harder. And that's not even taking into consideration the destabilizing effects of things like climate change. So I do think it's worth appreciating that Kolontai named this nostalgia so early that even at the moment that people were becoming independent and women were entering the labor force and they were able to pay for their own upkeep and they didn't rely on their fathers and husbands anymore, many of them at the same time were extremely nostalgic for a past in which they didn't have to be living those lives. And I think we're seeing the political ramifications of this nostalgia all over the world today. So that's the first thing that I think is really interesting. I mean, there's lots of interesting things about this essay, but I want to highlight just two uh, in this episode. So that's the first thing, which is the persistence of nostalgia for a kind of idealized past, which I think is irretrievable, but which is still very powerful in the hold of many of our imaginations. And certainly if you're an American young person who grew up looking at Disney movies and the idea of the, you know, Prince Charming and being saved through marriage and the, you know, perfect kiss or whatever. There's, there's definitely a lot going on in terms of the socialization of young girls to this day to believe that some knight in shining armor might come and save you from having to actually work at a crappy job or three crappy jobs in order to make ends meet. So that's, you know, it's a myth. It's a powerful myth. It's a powerful nostalgia. And I think we should, we do ourselves a huge discredit to not realize the power and allure of that myth, which Kolontai was very aware of in 1918. So then the second thing is the role of fiction. And I think that the role of fiction is super interesting here because I've been thinking a lot about Parasite, the South Korean movie that won the Academy Award a couple years back and this new Netflix series, Squid Game. And various sorts of television shows and series and films that are very hypercritical of capitalism. And what what are those films reflecting? Obviously, they're reflecting a huge disenchantment with our political system right now. There's no doubt about that. But I think that that disenchantment is being expressed by a fairly small percentage of people. And as in Kolontai's essay, Kolontai says that these newly independent single women are only a small fraction of women. 
the vast majority of women living in 1918 are still of the old type, are still hoping to find a good husband or a good man or a good family to provide for them. But the small minority of these independent women, because they're on the kind of cutting edge, they're on the cusp of this cultural change, they're setting the tone in literature. And it really makes me wonder, now I'm not a, I'm not a big popular culture person. I don't watch a lot of television. And so I feel like I'm a little bit out of the loop here. But one of the things that really strikes me is the popularity of these shows like Squid Game or the fact that Parasite won the Academy Award, which are really explicitly critical of capitalism. And there are so few voices out there. I mean, in the grander scheme of things, the vast majority of people are pretty centrist or conservative. And there's only kind of this like vanguard left out there that is really railing against the injustices that capitalism perpetuates, the many injustices that capitalism perpetuates. And yet at the same time, I feel like those voices, even though they're a minority and they don't always get as much airtime as other voices, they're a really important minority and they're really loud minority. And they start to set the tone for popular culture. And the thing that's really interesting about that is then then popular culture ends up reflecting the images and ideas and ideologies of this minority back to the wider population and, and sort of indirectly kind of starts to radicalize the larger population. I mean, there's a way in which discussions of socialism and critiques of capitalism are way more mainstream in 2021 than they were in 2015, just six years ago. So I think that for those of you out there who are listening to my podcast, who are artists or writers, playwrights, filmmakers of whatever sort, I think there's something really interesting to be thought about here in terms of the role that art can play. And it may exactly be that conservatives, especially in the United States, are incredibly critical of Hollywood. They were during the McCarthy era, and I think they still are of elite institutions like universities or media institutions like the New York Times or Hollywood film studios of the role that they play in shaping ideology. And part of that is because, you know, we have a capitalist system. And so the interesting irony of the capitalist system is that capitalists will publish books or make movies or produce television shows or stream shows that they think will be popular and will make money. And it doesn't matter what the ideological content of those shows are. I actually find that really interesting. In some ways, that's the hallmark of a free society. You can have a really radically left show even explicitly left show, as long as it gets enough streams and as long as it makes enough money for the studio, the studio heads don't actually, they're kind of agnostic. All they care about is money. And so there's this wonderful kind of irony here, which I think, again, Colin Ty put her finger on, which is that art can reflect society, even though it's only reflecting a particular minority of society that has the sort of class consciousness that she's talking about. But then through the representation of heroines who are independent and making choices about their own lives or through the representation of really profound critiques of the kind of injustice and horrors perpetuated by our economic system on so many ordinary people, we can actually see real societal change through the medium of art and literature and film and other sorts of media products that I think really make a big difference in the end. So, I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's even more stuff in this essay to talk about. But the two things for this episode, at least, that I really I want to hammer home, and I'd 
you know, love to discuss with in more detail with people who know a lot more about popular culture these days than I do is one, the persistence of this sort of nostalgia for a kind of idealized gender role, gender relation of the past, and also the the preponderance of new cultural media products that are kind of reflecting a more and more radical agenda. Those are my immediate thoughts for this episode. And I think I will continue with a discussion of this essay. Maybe I'll invite a guest. Maybe I'll talk to my daughter about it in the next episode. As always, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight. (laughs) 